In any case, I want to get right to it. So take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me give you a little bit of an introduction to this as we get started. The letters to the Thessalonians were some of the most personal of all of Paul's epistles. Probably only the epistle to the Philippians was more personal. These letters show that Paul had a genuine and deep affection for this church and these Christians. The church in Thessalonica was one of Paul's better churches. He speaks of his parental affection for them in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. His care for them is demonstrated by the fact that he sent his own beloved son in the faith, Timothy, to check up on them. That's chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. And he proved his love for them by praying for them. And he lets them know that he's praying for them in the passage we're going to be looking at here and also over in chapter 3. Now, as I was thinking about this, how would we feel if we knew that the Apostle Paul himself was praying for us? If, if we had an intimate association with him like these Thessalonians did, and then we receive a letter that says, by the way, even in my absence, I've been praying for you. I think we would feel very special. We would feel thrilled and humbled, I would imagine. that If Paul told us he had this parental affection for us, and that he's praying for us, I just wonder how we would feel about that. But that's what caught my attention here. Paul and his companions had reasons for thanking God for these Thessalonians. Something or some things about the Thessalonians gave Paul reasons to thank God. I want to be that kind of church, a part of that kind of church, don't you? I want to be a church that others would think about us and say, their first thought is, I, th I just thank God for those people. Well, that's why Paul is praying for them. So this is still part of the introduction. I just want to have you read with me verses 2 and 3, the first part of verse 3. After his introduction there, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And here it is. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind, and stop there. That's that. That would just be a, a real encouragement to any congregation to hear that, the first thing. I want you to note a couple of things, three things about this prayer. First of all, it's a prayer directed to God. It's a prayer directed to God. Now you might say, well, Dr. Zuber, aren't all prayers directed toward God? I don't know. Have you listened to some of the prayers sometimes? If you're ever in a small group of people and people are praying next to you and you realize they're not praying to God, they're, they're talking to me. They're trying to get something across to me. It's like the pastor I heard one time that said, got up and said the, his morning prayer was, God, help those people to really know where they're supposed to park and not take my parking. So that, wasn't, that, wasn't, that wasn't directed toward God. Paul thanks God because every good and perfect gift is from God. And this is a celebration of God's work in the lives of these people. Second, notice it was constant. Verse 2, he says, always. Verse 3, he says, constantly. The present tense of the verb there means that he didn't just give thanks. He was giving thanks as a practice. So again, the first thought that comes to Paul's mind when he thinks of the Thessalonians is, thank you, God. That's, that's just a real testimony to the Thessalonians themselves. And it wasn't sporadic or occasional. It was regular. And it was inclusive. 
Notice what he says, for all of you there. The word there, panton, means all, and it means each one of them. Not just all of you as a group, but he's thinking all in the sense of each and every single one of you, he thanks God for them. One author sagely writes, there is no reason to suppose that the Thessalonian church consisted of any less odd a collection of characters than the average congregation today. I like that one. You know, the, the odd congregation of characters. And there are a few characters here, I'm sure. And you know who you are. And uh, you're, you're thanked, thank, we thank God for you as well. What a wonderful thing it would be, again, if every time somebody thought about you, they would want to thank God. And that's really, that's the end of the introduction. Now I'm getting into the main point. And I wish Dr. Shannon was here because I have a plural noun proposition, four reasons why God, why Paul gives thanks to God for the Thessalonians. And he's mentioned Dr. Zimmick. He was my professor before he was uh, Dr. Shannon's professor. And uh, he would be happy to know that I'm using a plural noun proposition for uh, my sermon. So... Four reasons why Paul gives thanks to God for the Thessalonians. And by the way, I, it's the, the problem of every guest preacher. I know I'm not going to finish everything. I have way more here than I can get through in the time allotted. All right? I just want you to know that up front. Like my grandmother always used to say when she would put out way too much for dinner, look, I know you're not going to eat all of this, but I know you're not going to go away hungry. So that's my objective here. So if at some point I just say, that's it, we'll just cut it off there. It's another trick of guest preachers to wangle another invitation to finish the message. So. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how far I get. So let's get right to it. Paul doesn't give a list here so much as he's got this stream of appreciative consciousness as he just thinks about the Thessalonians and what occurs to him. He writes that down. So things aren't quite in order. So I'm not going to take things in the order of the text. But I'm going to take them in the order of the experience of the Thessalonians is why I'm going to start with verse 4. The first reason, verses 4 and 5 actually, the first reason that Paul gives thanks to God is for their sovereign election by God and their salvation. For their sovereign election by God and their salvation. And by the way, another footnote here is that uh, I would have had uh, PowerPoints but as I told you, I only heard about this on Thursday night, so I uh, didn't really have time for that. So I will try to make it clear. Paul gives thanks to God for their sovereign election by God and their salvation. Look at verse 4. Knowing brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now, there it is. It's, that's, that's the note about election. The, the word choice there denotes an act of picking out or choosing someone. It implies a selection of some from among others who are not selected. This particular term here occurs six times in the New Testament, and it occurs, interestingly enough, four times in the book of Romans, Romans 9:11, and then three times in Romans chapter 11, verses 5, 7, and 28. And in each one of those instances, it was about the election of the nation of Israel. And then it occurs here and once more in 2 Peter 1:10. And it always appears to denote an act of divine selection taking effect upon human subjects so as to bring special and saving relationship to God. Notice that this is something Paul is thanking God for. He's not trying to start a theological debate over election. He's not trying to start an argument. 
Paul didn't have a problem with the doctrine of election. We shouldn't have a problem with the doctrine of election and preaching the, preaching the gospel to sinners, even though we know that there is this doctrine of election. That's what we're supposed to do. Both are there. The Bible indicates that God not only saves us, but he chooses us before the foundation of the world. This is God's sovereign choice of certain individuals. And I've never understood why people object to that because it means that God had my name on his lips before the foundation of the world. And is that not precious? And it means that when Christ died on the cross, he had my name on his lips. And we can say that Christ died for me. And when the Spirit of God came to the point of regeneration, he knew me by name already. What a blessing. Paul thanks God for that. This election, by the way, two points, is something that can be known. Paul says, uh, knowing, brethren, beloved by God. And how do you know that somebody's elect? I've often said to my students, it would be great if all of the elect had a little golden plate behind their head so that we would be able to identify them. And uh, we know, okay, you're the elect. I'll preach the gospel to you. you well, forget it, okay? No, I mean, we, we would have that. And it would be also great if, if we, after you're saved, the little golden plate would light up. So then you would also know, okay, then you know who it is. But we don't. So we preach the gospel to every creature according to the commandment that Jesus gave us. And we know that that gospel, that word will not return unto him void, but will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it because God has his elect and those he's going to bring to saving faith. And that's a reason to thank God. And notice also election is grounded in God's love. Brethren, beloved by God. Why did God choose us? Why did God save us? Well, it was nothing in us. It was out of his great love with which he loved us. I know that uh, some of you don't really have a problem with that. Well, of course. You looked at yourself in the mirror this morning and said, what's not to love? (laughs) Uh, Of course, God loves us. And we go, "That's, that's probably the most obvious thing in the world. But it isn't. It isn't. It's not, it's not what God's... God doesn't look on the outside only. And by the way, when you got up the first, the first thing in this morning, walk to the mirror right away and, and then say that, okay? This is only after you've, you know, you've nipped it, tucked it, painted it, uh, <laughs> shaved it. You, you, the, only then do you say, well... No, God not only knows that, knows what you look like when you got up this morning, but he knows the inside of the sinner's heart. And you know what? He knew that before I knew him and he loved me. God is to be thanked because he chose us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is that not a reason to thank God? And because of this election, because they've been chosen, they received the gospel. Look at verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among your, for your sake. Now, what you have to understand about verse 5 is, is that verse 5 is really describing how Paul preached the gospel to the Thessalonians. So he preached it in power and in the Holy Spirit and with conviction. But, but actually, this verse also says how it was received by the Thessalonians. It was received as the word of God. It was received 
by that spiritual power. It was received so that it generated that full conviction. So we could really approach this, not just the, how Paul preached the gospel, but how the Thessalonians received the gospel. And there are two questions. How does one preach the gospel to as, so as to reach the sinners, the elect, and how is it received when it's preached that way? That's what we're looking at. It's interesting that Paul doesn't have to explain, by the way, what he meant by the term gospel. Uh, in verse uh, 2, the gospel, uh, verse 2 of chapter 2, the gospel of God, verse 2 of chapter 3, the gospel of Christ. Over in the second letter, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel was something that was already known to the Thessalonians. It's interesting that the New Testament doesn't spend many passages, we would think it might, describing what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel I preached. The gospel is the, gospel is the truth about Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 4, it's about Jesus Christ. It's the message about Jesus Christ. It's about his incarnation. It's about his sinless life, his atoning death. And when that's believed, when it's understood, and when it's taken to heart, personally appropriated, and when it's sincerely committed to, it brings about the forgiveness of sin, the assurance of eternal life for those who will acknowledge that they are sinners and they don't deserve this. They're not lovable. But God has loved them and Christ has died for them. And the Spirit is ready to regenerate them. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you've only had vague notions about what that gospel is, and you've never done that. You've never understood it. You've never appropriated it. You've never committed yourselves to it. Okay, stop listening to me right now and turn to someone next to you and say, do you know what he's talking about? And if they do, I wouldn't be offended if you'd get up right now and go out into the hallway and have that gospel explained to you because it's way more important that you understand that than anything I would have to say. But Paul is thankful that they had received the gospel how had they received it? Four points. He says, it did not come to you in word only. It did not come to you in word only. What that means is, be careful here, it doesn't mean that you don't need to use words. It means you use words, but not mere words, not bare words. We need to preach the word. How does the gospel come to people? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You have to preach the word of God. And the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. The, the word of God has its own inherent power. You know, people have asked me uh, over the years. I was a pastor for 18 years before I started torture, uh, being a professor. Uh, uh, and people would ask me, you know, I get so nervous when, you know, I'm, I'm trying to preach the gospel to people. And I said, how is that? I don't really understand. All you got to do is tell people about Jesus Christ. Don't you love him? Don't you want to share that? All you have to do is, listen, memorize the word of God and repeat that. I did that one time. A guy was uh, in a, sharing a cab one time, and, and uh, he, he asked me where I worked. I told him where I worked. He told him I was a professor and a pastor. And he said, I, I've always had a, a question for one of you guys. I said, really? You've always had these questions? He said, you always had these questions. I said, why? We're around everywhere. I mean, you don't have to wait till you share a cab. But anyway, uh, he asked me the question, and, um, and I said, 
I just quoted scripture to him. That's all I did. I started quoting scripture. He said, sounds like you're quoting something. And I said, yeah, the Bible. <laughs> uh, and I just kept quoting scripture. And he'd ask another question. And I'd just quote another scripture, scripture to him. All you got to do is trust the power of the word of God. Because it's been powerful in your life, has it not? It comes with supernatural power. That's the second point. It's got a supernatural power. The word there is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. Doesn't mean it blows you up. One author said, regardless of the erudition, the compelling logic, the soaring rhetoric, or the clever or interesting communication, if the truth is not accompanied by the power of God, it accomplishes nothing. It comes with power. God's power. There's an inherent power to the truth, as I've said, to the word of God. There's an inherent power to the gospel itself. Trust it. From everything the world thinks, this can't work. Think about it. It it says everything that, that they try to do and every other religion on the planet has ever tried to do is figure out how they can think their way to God, uh, be so devoted to God that he'll lo- love them in return, or do some kinds of behavior that will be proving to God. That's everybody else except us, the true gospel. It can't work, humanly speaking. It does work. We need to trust that power. Where does that power come from? It comes from, the third point, it comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot that goes on here. What, is the, what happens when the gospel is preached in truth accompanied by the working of the Holy Spirit? Well, here's just a, a quick list. It will convict sinners, John 16, 8. It will illumine the eyes of the heart, Ephesians 1, 18, Psalm 119, verse 18. It will open the heart, Acts 16, 14. Think of Lydia. I love that picture. As the gospel was preached, the Lord opened her heart. And and by the way, has that happened to you? I hope it has. Can you describe what that was? He opened your heart. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's the best way to describe it. I don't really understand what that is. But he did. Teaches the truth, John uh, John 14, John 15, John 16, those three chapters there. He brings assurance. Most of all, John 3, verses 3 through 8, the Holy Spirit regenerates. It's the Holy Spirit that causes us to be born again. And again, the natural man, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural man cannot understand that. I couldn't understand it before I was led to Christ. I couldn't really, I didn't understand it. I heard it many times. And the moment at which the Holy Spirit illumined my mind, opened my heart, drew me to himself, that's the only way I can describe it. Because unless you've had it happen to you, it's really kind of indescribable. It's power. It's not something I generated. Only the Holy Spirit can communicate the things of, this, things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. The gospel reaches the heart by the working of the Holy Spirit. And again, that just makes it easier For us to witness, it also is something that we recognize is mysterious, powerful, but real in our lives. And then that leads to the fourth point here. It comes with full conviction, he says. As they preached the gospel with full conviction, by extension, that conviction resulted in that that these Thessalonians believed, that is, they understood They committed with their hearts and with their behavior to this truth. 
In other words, they were saved. Is it okay to talk that way anymore these days? To describe yourself as saved? To say that you are a saved person? To say Jesus saves? That that's the gospel? Well, the Thessalonians were saved. And that's a reason to thank God. Is it not? Obviously, this has to be the first reason to thank God for, for other people. The first, thing, the first thing a pastor should do is give thanks to God for an elect and saved congregation. Isn't this what we desire for our children? What's the first thing you want for your children? You want them to be saved. What's the first thing you want for your families? You want them to be saved. You want your spouse to be saved. When was the last time, think about it, you thanked God for the fact that your spouse was saved? That's really important for a lot of reasons. Do we regularly pray for that? Think about it again. How important is it to have an elect and saved church? And that's all God's doing. Jesus saves. You should thank God that you're part of a body of saved people. Well, you say, well, you go to church. You know, wouldn't you expect to see a lot of saved people there? Well, some churches, yes. Some churches, not so much. You say, Dr. Zuber, it's, is it possible that many were not truly saved? <clears throat> Unfortunately, that's often true, but in the case of these Thessalonians, they'd given ample evidence that they were saved, which brings us to the second reason for Paul's thanksgiving, and that is uh, that he thanks God for their Christian character qualities and their Christian virtues. So back up to verse 3. It says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. That's an incredibly rich verse. We could spend the entire rest of this hour, could have started with that verse and ended with it. But of course, we recognize these three virtues, faith, love, and hope. They're a favorite triad of the Apostle Paul. Uh, five, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 8 of this very epistle. Of course, quintessential verse that has those three are, is uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, a great love chapter. Colossians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, many places. One author says, these are the constant companions of the committed Christian. Another says, these are a satisfactory portrayal of the nature and scope of the Christian life. Christian life can't begin without faith. It can't grow without love. And it can't last without hope. Faith, love, and hope are named in their logical order here. Faith rests on the past. Love works in the present, and hope looks to the future. Faith looks back to Christ's work on the cross. Love looks up to Christ at the Father's right hand, and hope looks forward to the coming of Christ for his own. But Paul's reason for mentioning them here, Paul's stress is not on the virtues alone, but rather what they produce. They are the active ingredients of the Christian life. Finding expression in active work, patient toil, and enduring constancy. Now, I don't want you to miss what we're trying to demonstrate here, and that is Paul has reasons to thank God for these Thessalonians, and he mentions their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. 
In other words, again, what comes to Paul's mind when he starts thinking about these Thessalonians are these, these qualities. They are the qualities, as we've said, of a genuine Christian faith. The faith of the Thessalonians was no mere speculative belief. Of course, we know that uh, we're saved by faith alone, but you've heard this no doubt many times. I've heard it on tape from uh, Pastor MacArthur many times, but not the faith which is alone. We, we recognize that, that faith works. Paul and James are not in conflict here. Faith, genuine faith, results in a life that shows itself. Uh, we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. Over and over again, the fruit of this faith is to be demonstrated. And it's the fruit of this faith that Paul is thinking about when he mentions their work of faith. And he thanks God for that. That's an indication, of course, it's not of them, but it is of God. This refers to the labor of love. Not, it's not the labor of a particular cause, although that's good. We need volunteers in the nursery, I hear. So uh, that's a good, good thing. It's, it's got to be a labor of love, uh, you know. Some people are good with kids. Some people are like me. But, uh, <laughs> but you, should, you, should have, you, you should do some kind of... But this refers to something else. This labor of love is a, an effort. The term here means something that's, that's provoked by love. And that is, that is the Christian life itself is laborious. This is when, when people tell us, oh, the, you know, the Christian life is going to be really great. It's going to be, it's going to be wonderful. That's like, that's like false advertising, folks. You know, it's, like, it's not a flower-strewn pathway all our lives through. It's not going to be, it's not going to be that. When, I, I, I love the picture that, um, that uh, when Paul was converted, remember, he was uh, in Antioch and he had that uh, fellow named Ananias, not that Ananias, a different Ananias. They came and he said, Paul, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> Is that what he said? <laughs> he said, uh, you're going to persecute me. You're going to persecute. No, no, I'm going to convert you. And then this is your life. Remember that other passage in Corinthians where he talks about how he spent, uh, you know, labors and, and beaten and in the deep. And I mean, Paul had a more interesting life than any Indiana Jones movie you've ever seen. <laughs> and then at the end, what did he get? He got a cold chop. And Peter got a hot steak, <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't a good meal, okay? Look, this life is laborious. Why do we do it? Got up this morning, pulled out of my garage, looked down, and I, I said, I'm, I'm saying this as a confession, okay? This is it's not good. So this is me, you know, confessing to you that I pulled out of the driveway, and I looked down the the street in our little street in our HOA, and I said, look at all these pagans staying here at home. <laughs> and then it's Lord, instantly the Lord convicted me and said, you know what? You're not, you, you need to go out there and preach the gospel to those people again, because that's why. All right. But the point is, is that I recognize that this life itself is tough. Why do we do it? Why, why do we get up in the morning? Why do we go through all of this? Why, do we, why are you all here? Why do you make the effort? Why do you... Witness to others when you get rejection. Why do we do all of that? Why do we serve others? Why do we go to the nurse? Why do we do all that? It's a labor that is compelled by love. 
The world looks at us and says, why do you do that? And we respond, the love of God compels me. But it's not a compelling sort of like I'm whipped into it. It's, I, I love it. Paul could see that in the lives of these Thessalonians. And that led to a steadfastness. The word steadfastness there, hupomone, the King James Version has patience. That's not quite it. It's patience of hope. This, this literally denotes a condition of staying under pressure. Again, the Christian life is not easy. We know that. We live with that. And it's not over soon. It's a marathon. It's constant pressure from the world, and it never lets up. All right? If I, if I skip watching Fox News for a few nights, it's like a soap opera. I come right back to the point I left off. Here's another attack from the world. Not just on, on, on really serious you know, morality that everybody ought to accept, but in many ways, an attack directly on our faith. An attack on God. And it happens over and over, and it never lets up. But hope endures. Hope perseveres. Hope keeps going because our eyes are fixed on Christ, Hebrews 12. Because we know who has already won the victory, that is Jesus Christ. And so 1 Corinthians 15, 58, our toil is not in vain in the Lord. By the way, just a, a quick note on that. L listen carefully. Our toil is not in vain in the Lord. Because from the world's standpoint, it does look vain. And because it's hard, sometimes we might think it looks vain. And we have to be reminded it's not in vain. This hope that we have is, and we're going to come back to this again. Paul kind of loops back to this again before he finishes this passage. But this hope that we have transcends mere human wishful anticipation and rests confidently in the consummation of redemption that Scripture says will occur when Christ returns. We live in this world with that confident assurance that's going to, that's coming that we know he's coming again, and we know it's going to, it's going to result in, in, in a blessedness that we can't even begin to imagine. But we don't experience it now. This is not, sorry to that guy who preaches in the airplane hangar in Houston, our best life now. This is not my best life now. God reminds me that this is not my best life now. And he reminds me, regularly, through the scriptures, through the fellowship of the saints. My best life is yet to come. That's the hope that I have. Again, as I thought about this, it occurred to me that a lot of our preaching and even our self-admonition focuses on exhorting others to intensify their faith, to increase their faith. That's good. To, to seek a deeper devotion in love. Okay, that's, that's not wrong. It's good. To have a more confident constancy of hope. I think that's absolutely the right thing we ought to be doing. But in this context, and what I'm really trying to bring home to us here right now, is that we, should, we shouldn't just constantly be looking for, you know, increased faith, deeper love, you know, 
increase our hope, but we should be thanking God for those things in our lives now. It's one of the things we need to recognize. Look, I, I, I regularly look back to where I was. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, just the opposite. We put the dis in dysfunction in my family growing up. I mean, the point is, is that where I came out of, a lot of my high school friends find out that I'm a professor at a theological seminary and they have... They cannot explain it, okay? They, they, this is, I'm as far afield. I didn't grow up like, you know, Dr. MacArthur with like a whole chain of preachers behind me. Uh, I, have, I have absolutely, this, I'm like a planet that has spun out of the solar system from where I was. So I can think back on it and I can say, look, I am not, yes, I press on. I have not arrived. If you want testimony that I have not arrived, my wife is right over there, please. You know, I have not arrived. I just told you this morning. I couldn't get out of the parking, out of the driveway without something. But God has done such an incredible work of faith. And, and, and the love that keeps compelling me. Why do I do it? Because, you know, it's not because, okay, I'm going to earn something. It's because of the love of God and, and the hope that I have. Well, friends, the hope that I have is absolutely unshakable. The world doesn't understand that. When you tell the world, you know you're going to go to heaven. They know from their worldview, no one can know that. Get it? You know you're going to heaven. And the world says, you cannot know that. So somebody's insane. <laughs> they think I am. They think we are. We say, fine. <laughs> you are. <laughs> but God has done a work, has he not? God has done a work in my life. God has done this. How can we, I think we fail to honor the Lord if we fail to notice the progress we've been made. Don't get prideful, obviously, but thank God for where you were and where you are. Because, listen, that's a great encouragement to keep moving forward. If you, if you say, we haven't made any progress at all in this social issue in this country. We haven't made any progress at all in dealing with this domestic problem. After all we've had for all these years, we say, you haven't made any progress at all. We go, well, and I don't know what else to do. But if you say, God has done this work in your life, and you thank God for that, that's a real encouragement to go on. My sons will probably never hear this message, so I can use them as an illustration. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, if I came home with anything less than A's and B's, I knew I was in real trouble. When my son came home with a C, I said, above a D. <laughs> D is for diploma. <laughs> Great. Keep going, man. Keep going. That was a lot greater motivation. God has done a work in your life, has he not? Shouldn't we thank God for that? All right, we need to keep moving. Third, Paul gives another reason to give thanks to God for their stellar testimony in, in, in the world, to the world, verses 6 and through 8. God thanks, Paul thanks God for their stellar testimony to the world. Well, look at verse 6. For you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. 
How do they do that? Because they receive the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We could sort of keep expanding on that, but I just want to center on that one line. They received the word and became imitators. The word imitators there is the Greek word mimetai, from which we get the word mimic. Uh, So what do they do? They mimic the apostles, not mockingly, of course. They mimicked the apostles. They, they, They patterned themselves after what the apostles did. The Thessalonians disciplined their lives as they saw the discipline in the life of Paul and his companions. They preached the gospel themselves as they saw Paul and his companions preach the gospel. They persevered in the faith because they had seen Paul persevere in the faith. Don't forget, when Paul came to the the Thessalonians, he was driven out. Uh, You know, the, the Thessalonians, he was only there a short time. And, and what did he do? He, he just went down to the next town and started preaching down there, and the Thessalonians knew that. One of my favorite parts in the book of Acts of the Apostle Paul, remember when he did in Lystra? He was in Lystra, and he preached the gospel, and they turned on him, and they stoned him, and they thought he was dead and dragged him out of the city. When he revived, what did he do? He went back in and finished the sermon, okay? That's, that's, the kind of, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of dedication. That's something to really imitate. They didn't simply become followers in the sense that they became adherents to their teaching, they began to pattern their lives after the ministry, the example of the missionaries that had come to them. And along with that, look at verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That's really interesting. So they patterned their lives after the apostle Paul and his companions, and then... Macedonia, Macedonia would have been the part of Greece that was north of Thessalonica. Achaia was south, that would have been Athens. So the the other parts of Greece heard their example. Get this, Paul left them an example, they mimicked it, they were then an example to somebody else. You know, that's exactly what we want to do at the seminary. Train men to train other men to keep on training men. That's what we do, right? And uh, it's, if it's, in fact, after a while, they don't remember my name, that's fine. They remember what we've taught them, and they keep passing that on. Isn't that what we want to do? We want to do that with our children, right? We want to leave a pattern to them that they can pattern to their... This is, the, this is what we're supposed to be doing. And Paul said, this is exactly what the Thessalonians did. They followed Paul. They lived that example. They passed that example on to others. What example? The word example here is the Greek word tupon, which refers to, we get our word type. It refers to a mark, you know, like that's going to leave a mark, okay? And they did. An imprint left by a die that strikes to make a metal coin or a, uh, an impression on a, on a bit of wax with a seal. That's, that's the idea. They had the imprint of Paul's message on, and his ministry on their lives. So they were the mold or pattern to other followers. When it, when it says here that uh, the word example there, it really has the idea of, a, uh, of, of more than just one, a model. They were models to the other churches. By the way, one author notes, this is the only text in the New Testament where a whole congregation has served as a model to other congregations. This is why I, I love the Thessalonians. They're a remarkable church. They, as a church, became a pattern for other churches. Nobody else is described that way. Why? Because uh, moving on, verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Sounded forth. That's a very expressive term there. The sounded forth means like a, a blast of a trumpet or the echo of thunder. 
Their testimony had an impact. It, it echoed through the rest of Greece. The verb sounded forth denotes the resounding reverberations of a loud noise. And the perfect tense indicates the effect of the blast. It was like hanging in the air. And it's not merely their, the account of their endurance that spread verse, from verse 7, but it's the gospel message. Again, verse 8, the word of the Lord has sounded forth and the content of their faith so that in every place your faith has gone or toward God has gone forth. Paul says, we don't even need to say anything. We, we get to places and, and we start preaching. And say, that sounds like what we heard about that group of people back in Thessalonica. The, their testimony, what Paul is saying here, read it carefully, is that their testimony had spread so that when Paul started preaching, others said, yeah, we recognize that. That's the example. Oh, you were the guy that led them to that example. We don't have to say anything. It's gone forth. The word of God came to them, and they were transmitters of that same word to others. They lived the life that they had seen in the apostle Paul and his companions, and the example of that life went out to other people. Friends, is that not something to thank God for? That's what we should be thanking God for. We should be thanking God that when he saves people, that salvation affects them so that then they become the ones who spread it to others. Isn't that what we're all supposed to be about? In other words, it was an evangelistic church. Thank God for evangelistic churches. And again, you might say, well, Dr. Zuber, aren't all churches evangelistic? Sadly, obviously, the answer is no. They're very satisfied to be contained within themselves and just keep reminding themselves, we got our doctrine down. We do our thing well. It's like the old Puritan had a very small church. He says, my wife and me, my son, his wife, us four, no more. There's some people that think that way. Last reason why Paul gives thanks to God for their unmistakable conversion to God. Look at verse 9. For they themselves report about us. See, there that is again. The, the report about the Thessalonians had, had gone to the point where people are telling Paul about his preaching in Thessalonica. Uh, hey, did you hear about this guy? This church really, was, this guy came in and preached and he, these people are really changed. And Paul says, hello, that's me. Uh, anyway, what kind of reception we had with you? One of my one of my favorite verses, verse 9b, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Again, I, I think sometimes that uh, those of you that grew up in the church, those of you that, uh, wonderful, that's great, that you have Christian parents, you hear the testimonies all the time, that's wonderful. But it's those of us that have come out from the depths of where the world is living and taking others, that this is just amazing, wonderful, how you turn to God from idols. Be clear here, this is repentance. He thanks God for their repentance. 
Repentance is an unmistakable and inevitable evidence of genuine faith and true conversion. Any true conversion, in any true conversion, there must be an intentional repentance, a turning to God from, fill in the blank, a turning to God from whatever idols, whatever, whatever dominates the life, whatever a life has been devoted to, you turn to God from that. The word turned there, epistrepho, is used in the New Testament to indicate a sinner's conversion and a turning in a completely opposite direction. It implies not simply a change of attitude, but a change of action. It's not just, repentance is not just a change of mind. It's a change of life. It's radical. Think about when, when he says from idols, what idols are we talking about there? We're talking about the idols of the Greco-Roman world, the idols, the temples, the, the thing that Paul saw everywhere in Athens. Listen carefully. This was how the culture thought. It was a given. The, 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 the gods are there. They're represented by the idols. Who doesn't know that? This is why the early church was persecuted because they knew that those idols were nothing and they wouldn't worship them and they wouldn't bow down to them. And the rest of the culture said, look, if you don't bow down to the the idols, if you don't bow down to the gods, they're going to get angry at us. They're going to they're send plague on us. They're going to send other armies. They're going to send the barbarians. And eventually, in the fourth century, that's what happened. The, the, the Goths and the Visigoths and the barbarians came down. And, and the, the, the world said, see, it's you Christians. It's your fault. You haven't been worshiping the gods. You're not going along with the program. How much different is that than the way we've got today? You're not going along with the program. You need to go along with where everybody else is. Or it's not going to work. Everybody has to get in lockstep and do these things. And you got you to think the way we do and you got to do as we do. Otherwise, otherwise, well, we're going to come back on you. What did they do? They turned to God from idols. Again, look at it again and don't think it's that easy because it's not. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is not merely the addition of some good advice for living, but a total reorientation of life, a total worldview change. Friends, we literally do not live in the same world they live in. I know it, I mean, I'm not talking about the air and the earth and, you know, the physical create. I'm talking about the, the mental worldview construction that they have. You ever, again, watch Fox News or read the newspaper or something like that and go, that's insane. How can they possibly think that? In their worldview, it makes perfect sense. It doesn't make sense in our worldview because it's simply not true. It, and that's what this turning is. It's a complete reorientation of how you think, of, of motivation. It's a complete different motivation. Like, I understand. Think of this COVID thing. I understand. This world is all they've got, okay? If there's this tiny virus that might take it away from them, and what hope do they have beyond this world? Nothing. 
They're going to do everything they possibly can to make sure they don't get it. They're, they're afraid because this is all there is. Me? Bring it on. I've had, I had COVID. Many of you did. It wasn't pleasant. I've been sicker. But I, wasn't, I didn't fear it. They fear it. This is all they have. They have to make this work. And when, it, when you say make it work, what's working for them? Well, what are the three great motivations in life? Fame, money, power. That's it. That describes everything of what they're striving for. Fame, money, and power. And if you don't have power over other people, at least you got the power over your own life. And if you don't have a lot of fame, at least you got a lot of friends. And if you don't have a lot of money, well, you at least got more money than the next guy. That's all they live for. It's an entirely false worldview because it's all passing away. And there's a difference of loyalty. And this is the basic one. Listen, when it says turn to God from idols, where are the idols really? John Calvin said our hearts are little idol factories. An idolater doesn't worship idols. Listen carefully. An idolater doesn't worship idols. An idolater worships himself or herself through the medium of an idol. It's really all about them. What else do they have but themselves? So it's a difference of loyalty, a difference of worldview, a difference of motivation, a difference of loyalty. And, and they just can't understand it. And notice... Just a footnote here. It's not a first turn from idols and then turn to God. It's not clean up your act and then go to church. It's not, it's not that. It's not, a, it's not a, you know, get better and then trust Christ. It's all one act. This turning is from idols to God. And when that happens, the life completely changes. It's a complete change. In fact, it's so weird from the standpoint of the world they can't understand it at all. And again, I got a, my own testimony. When I first became a Christian, after I was led to the Lord, what's your first thought? Let's go get my friends and lead them to the Lord. So I went, I thought this was going to be easy. I was a debater in high school. Was, you know, I can do this. Come on, say Jesus. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, all I did was I turned all of my old friends into new enemies. <laughs> So what's going on here? They, they, they don't get it. But, but I started looking at my life. And it, it was strange. I wanted to go to church. I wanted to read the Bible. I had an insatiable appetite to read Christian literature. I wanted to be around other Christians. Even if they were a bunch of little old ladies at the Wednesday night prayer meeting, <laughs> I preferred that to everything else. It was really strange. I wanted to know the Bible. I haven't, it's not been so many years. It's been long, many years, but not that many years that I don't remember that. Do you remember that? That change? That change in your life? That thing that came over you? Are you not still surprised by that? At least a little bit? What a reason to thank God. Paul thought about the Thessalonians and he thanked God for redeemed lives for changed lives. Isn't it wonderful? This is why we become so jaded. We become so jaded. We become jaded, you know, the Christian life. We come, we go, we listen to sermons. We go, that's good, that's not good. You know, we give him an eight, you know. His enthusiasm was all right, but the <laughs> content was good. I mean, we, you know, that's the kind of thing we think. 
It's why I love coming on Sunday nights to listen to those testimonies. Those testimonies of changed lives, broken life, drug-riddled emptiness, a broken marriage, the terrible destruction of sin, and the glorious restoration of God's grace. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Okay, I'll try that again. Jesus saves. Amen. 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 Jesus saves. All right? See, work on that, okay? <laughs> How can we not thank God for that? And then, I, my time's running out. They began to serve God. Uh, there's more to that. They began to serve. One quick point there, what we mean by service. Paul says that's worship. Romans chapter 12, it's not just serving and working. It's worship. You're a you're service of worship. We begin to worship God. We serve God. And then finally, verse 10, they, I won't read it. They waited patiently for the Son. That's again, that's back to what I was talking earlier, that change in worldview, that change in worldview. It's not just this world is all there is, but it's, that's the real worldview. That's where we're going. That's my home. That's what I'm looking forward to. I'm serving now. This is just the vestibule to get in. Life is short. This is not, this is a, this is a marathon, it seems to us, but this is just the prelude to a glorious eternity with Jesus Christ. And I can't wait for Jesus Christ to return. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. We need to teach more on the subject of eschatology to, and, and the coming of the Lord to encourage our hearts. Instead of telling us in the sermons on why the world is so bad, we should be talking about the, how it's going to be so great when Jesus comes back. Jesus is coming. See, I got you. You're coming along. Yeah. We know that because he was raised from the dead. He's able to rescue us. Notice right down at the end, right, right down at the end of verse 10, he rescues us from the wrath to come. Wow. Isn't that a reason to thank God? Whether that wrath is the eternal wrath or whether that wrath is the tribulation, you can debate about that, but we're not going to face either one. Thank God. Thank God. I'm thanking God. When we start thanking God for other people, what do we usually thank God for? We talk about all those kind of things. We talk, thank God that they're healthy again. Thank God that they, their kids are, are walking with the Lord. Thanks. And that's all good things to thank God for. What did Paul Thank God for, for the Thessalonians, that they were the elect, that they were saved, their lives had been changed, that they had a new orientation and worldview, and they were serving him, and they were looking for the return of the Lord Jesus. Thank God for those that look forward to the Lord Jesus. Again, as I said at the outset, you know, what a great privilege to know that Paul's praying for you. That would be a wonderful privilege. Here's one better. Jesus is praying for us right now. Jesus, I always tell my students, Jesus has your name on his lips right now. And I know what he's praying. Father, I pray that they listen to what Zuber is telling them. <laughs> Thank God for your changed life. Thank God for your salvation. Thank God for your hope. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to think through these great points of thanksgiving the Apostle Paul had for his beloved Thessalonians. May we emulate them. 
And may you be pleased with us as much as Paul was pleased with them. Lord, finish the message in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.